please turn also to the Old Testament, to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. We'll begin reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, and then on through to chapter 6, verse 12. This is God's holy word. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the, to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. And we thank you, Father, for the warnings that come in your word. Father, we acknowledge that outside of you, there is no true rest. There is no satisfaction. And Father, we acknowledge that loving money is idolatry. It's covetousness. But it also leaves us empty because you alone are the one who fills that void in our hearts. Father, we acknowledge 
that you have created us with eternity in our hearts, a longing for that which is true, for that which is spiritual, a longing for you. And Father, we thank you that in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have our true joy, satisfaction, and rest. That he is the one who has promised us eternal rest for our souls. Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know this rest, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would transform hearts. That they would embrace the good news of Jesus Christ and find the forgiveness of sins and eternal rest. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. How important is a good night's sleep to you? I'll I'll tell you how important it is. It's only important when you're not getting a good night's sleep. You take it for granted that a good night's sleep is what you ought to get. But when you have one night, or particularly two or three or several nights, where a good night's sleep is missing, you will feel it. It might be the common interruptions that due to a stiff neck. You ever have a stiff neck and uh, you, can't, you can't turn your head in a certain position, you won't sleep well. Maybe if you're traveling and uh, you have a bad bed or a, uh, your unusual pillow, you're not going to sleep well. If it's just a little too warm or just a little too cold, Can you imagine? The scriptures describe the principle about having the blanket that's not long enough. So the blanket that doesn't quite cover your feet or your arms, that that length is incorrect. And just a little cold, you're going to have trouble sleeping. Or perhaps for some of you, uh, as you get older, one, two, maybe three bathroom breaks in the middle of the night going to upset your sleep. Thunderstorms. Thunderstorms can come, or newborns, teenagers, grown children, children, worries or anxieties. What about nightmares that wake you up? Perhaps, like in my neighborhood, we have coyotes howling, or birds singing very early, smoke alarms chirping. You notice that when your your battery in your smoke alarm goes bad, it's never at 11 a.m., or 3 p.m. It's going to be at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's just how they're designed. And the next day, you start to feel the effects of not having good rest. You realize that in in some countries, some countries, it's actually a cruel form of torture to have people in a, a cell and that every time they see you start to doze off, they poke you with a stick. And they keep doing that for days on end until you get to the point where you start to hallucinate. So these mind-altering drugs that people take to, see, to get hallucinations, if you don't get enough sleep and you don't, go, you don't sleep for a few days, you will start hallucinating on your own. And what a cruel form of torture that is. You realize that the physical aspect, physical rest, how important that is, but all of this describes the true spiritual need to have spiritual rest and how necessary that is. And I ask you, do you have that? 
Do you have true spiritual rest? You realize that this doesn't come easily. It only comes through Jesus Christ, who freely offers us his rest. As we see in this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6 actually form some kind of a series. At the center, there's a a chiasm, so there's a structure, a literary structure, where chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, that you can think of that as an indented section. That's the tip, that's the tip of the arrow. So the focus there is that God is the one who gives us enjoyment. He is the one who gives us satisfaction. He's the one who gives us rest. In in chapter 5, verses 10 through 17, he addresses the matter. If you see uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 to 17, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, that they're, they're both talking about wealth or other things like it, things in this life, but there's a different focus. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 17, he addresses the cause, so to say. He addresses the cause, uh, and he addresses the motive of the heart. So the, the scripture that comes to mind is that of do not love money. For whoever loves money will not be satisfied with money. And whoever loves income uh, or whoever loves uh, silver with his income. So it addresses the matter of the heart, the motive. Is there a love of money? Is there a covetousness in us? And it's saying that that's wrong, that that is bad, that's idolatry. That this is uh, disobedience to God. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, instead of addressing the cause, it's actually addressing the effect. So if there is idolatry, there is covetousness in your heart, there is love of money, uh, not only will that produce problems, but you see in effect... It leaves an emptiness. It leaves a restlessness, a dissatisfaction. And there is a lasting effect to any sin in your life, uh, and it's never wholesome and positive. But here, this matter of the love of money, of covetousness, that it leaves a void. That it leaves a void even worse than not having those things, not attempting to satisfy yourself with those things. So that's today's passage. What we see here in chapter 6, Jesus Christ gives true rest and satisfaction for your soul, which wealth, possessions, honor, children, and longevity cannot secure. Jesus gives true rest and satisfaction for your soul, which wealth, possessions, honor, children, and longevity cannot secure. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the fullness that is lacking in verses 1 through 6. The second point, your soul's longing in verses 7 through 9. And third, your satisfaction and rest in God in verses 10 through 12. So the first point, the fullness that is lacking in verses 1 through 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. Here, it's as if the author, Kohelet, the, uh, the convener or the preacher, that he 
he doubles back on a question or a lingering idea. So from chapter 5, verse 19, uh, he, he mentions this principle about uh, God who gives the gift uh, to allow men to enjoy their wealth, to enjoy life. And it's as if the hearer is saying, oh, no, wait a minute, you got that wrong. I, I, think, I think you misspoke there. Uh, all these things, all the things in this world, wealth, pleasure, uh, uh, labor, women, uh, food and drink, all those things can satisfy. You said you, it, it can't satisfy. No, they can satisfy. No, buddy, I think, I think you misunderstand. And he goes back and you compare chapter 5, verse 19 to chapter 6, verse 2, and you notice that there's something that's missing there. So in chapter 5, verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Here, he's saying God is the one who gives power to enjoy them. That this is the gift of God. And yet we have in chapter 6, verse 2, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. So here, Kohelet's saying, hey, we're going to double back because I want you to understand something. There is nothing in wealth and possessions and honor that inherently satisfy. They have no power to give us satisfaction. In fact, the more you have of them, it seems like it whets your appetite for even more so that you're less satisfied. It's like the concept of drinking seawater. If you're stuck in a boat and you've been there for days, your, your, your ship's fresh water has ran out and you're eyeing the sea. And it's so tempting. You think about the sun beating down on you, how hot it is. If I could just take a drink. And the warning says, don't ever do that. Because for every sip that you take, you're going to probably need two sips to flush that salt, that salt out. And so also, when you think about people who try to fill that niche, that longing in their heart, the longing for God. God has created us with that longing. And if we, if we attempt to fill that longing in our hearts with the material things of this life, it's going to create in us an even deeper void, an even deeper longing. And whatever joy, whatever satisfaction those items would have provided, it'll rob us of those. It'll rob us of those. All you have to do is think for a moment about what it's like. Imagine someone, a young person, he gets his first car. For every young man, that's great, isn't it? You got your first car. It might not be a new car. It might be a used car. It might be a hand-me-down car, but it's your car. But here, what we have, here what we have regarding what's yours. This man, if he literally bows down and worships this car, whatever, however nice it is, we just heard from uh, one of our friends in California, that a grandparent bought this 16-year-old friend of ours a Corvette. How about that for a recipe for disaster? Uh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, 
And just think about how much his insurance will be for a 16-year-old driving a Corvette. But let's say, let's say it's not a Corvette. It's, 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 a, it's a Corolla like, like I had. But if you bow down and worship it, whatever joy and satisfaction you would have had in a new car, it's going to be robbed. It's going to be gone. Because the car can't provide that. The car can't be your God. It doesn't provide for you all these things. And the very joy that you would have had is gone. The same thing regarding a spouse. The same thing regarding a job. The same thing regarding a house. The same thing regarding children. And on and on and on the list goes. If we attempt to deify anything in our lives, if we attempt to get any infinite satisfaction from something finite, it will always be failure and disappointment. Here, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, is as if... Kohelet is trying to paint the best possible picture. So in verse 2, he's saying that this person, uh, God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so he lacks nothing of all that he desires, except that God does not give him the power to enjoy it. You see, here, here, he takes that for granted. If God gives me all these blessings, I'll be satisfied. So this is a full treasury, the best case scenario. So he lacks uh, nothing of all that he desires. So what could, be, what could possibly be lacking for this hypothetical man? Here is that wrong assumption. Well, possessions and honor are inherently satisfying, which they're not. So then we have in the second section, verses 3 through 5, and understand here from the east... From an Eastern perspective, uh, there are certain things that they value. So in verse 3, a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So in the East, having many children, especially many sons, that this is considered a blessed man. So here, he has a hundred children. How many, how many of the kings, you think about the Israelite kings, how many of them had a hundred children? Probably not many. But here, the description is a full quiver. So he had a full treasury, he has a full quiver. Well, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Because there's nothing inherently satisfying about children. Uh, in fact, as, as those who are older than me have said, after you have children, you're kept up at night uh, because they cry, they wet the diaper, and uh, as they get older, it's not as if uh, these concerns get reduced. They actually go up. So it's, it's that 35-year-old who calls you and says, Dad, Mom, I need money. <laughs> and that, and it happens, if it happens at 2 a.m., it can't be a good thing, right? It can't, it can't be a good thing if at, at 2 a.m. they're calling asking for money. And, and so we see here that there's something lacking. And here the author even describes the very comparison in verse 3. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. How sad it is to have a stillborn. Meaning that the mother has to go through all the labor, 
All the same labor. But there's no joy afterwards because there's not life. That's the very principle. You go through all this painful labor, all the the caring and the difficulty sleeping because of the pregnancy. And, And then there's birth. And all those things are forgotten with the gift of a new child. But for a stillborn, you have all the suffering, all the labor, all the pain, and there's no life. And yet here... The author is saying it's better to be this stillborn than to be this man who has these hundred children and many years of life. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Perhaps some of you are wondering, is he saying that it's better to snuff out a life in the womb? Saying no, not at all. Even people today try to make that argument. But the answer is no. That's not what he's saying at all. Stillborn is something that happens naturally. And he's saying that there's a double whammy. There's a double negative. So for the man who lives his life and he has all of these good things, but it provides no satisfaction, it's actually worse than never having had those things at all. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's coming back to. Verse 5 there, Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he. And that's the very principle that we're getting at here. The rest, the satisfaction. That the man who has had all this wealth, possessions, honor, and children along life, that having no satisfaction in those things because God hasn't given him that gift, that blessing of satisfaction and rest, that the end result is that he's even worse off than if he never had those things. And then in verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Children, do you remember? Who is the longest living man in the Bible? His name was Methuselah. And he lived how many years? It was 969 years. And What we have in this statement, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, the author is saying that here you have a man who lived twice as long as the longest living man, Methuselah. He lived 2,000 years. And see, this this is the other part of the blessing. So in the East, having material goods, having many children, descendants... Uh, seeing, seeing those descendants of the third and fourth generation, so having long life to see many, many of uh, many generations come. You think about how in the Eastern culture, recount when servants dealt with kings. That first statement, that of blessing, O king, live forever. Often do you hear that? Oh, king, live forever. So the Eastern people understand that long life was a blessing. But the argument here is do not all go to the one place. They all go to the grave. The poor man, the rich man, they still end up in the grave. And so there's this fullness that is lacking. I ask you, people of God... The Lord has given you many good things. But are you trying to find your rest and your satisfaction in those things? I think back to difficult times. 
stories of families uh, who were in the middle of the 20th century in Germany. They could have been a very wealthy family, had a whole lot of wealth. And then after, after the war, after the war was done, supposedly the stories were all the wealth that they had saved up. After the war and the, the um, runaway inflation rates that would have happened, all they could buy with all that wealth was a postage stamp. Think about how bad that is, a postage stamp. And, and there we have to learn <clears throat> that ultimately our trust is not if we can store up enough, then we don't have to depend on God. We don't have to pray that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Should, should we ever be in that situation where we desire no longer to depend upon God? We shouldn't be. We should not be. He commands us that we would pray and ask for our daily bread. And we should do so. And if ever we're in a situation where we're trying to get out of trusting in God, then there's something wrong with our heart's desire. That part of maturity in the Christian life is that we're content with having to depend upon God. Because throughout your life, God has proven that He indeed is trustworthy. That He indeed is trustworthy. So this is the fullness that is lacking. We have the second point, your soul's longing, in verses 7 through 9. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. There in verse 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. <clears throat> Children, how, how, often, how often has this happened to you? If you go to a buffet, or perhaps even in your own home, there's dinner in front of you, and you're saying, I'm going to take this big portion, this big plate. And then you bring it back to your table, and then you try to eat it, and you can't finish half of it. And then your parents say something like, well, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Because you had this great appetite, and you thought, hey, I can eat all that. And you can't. Your stomach is full. If you eat any more, it's going to come back up. And that's no good. No one is satisfied there. And here, this verse tells us, verse, verse 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth. Your mouth is a small orifice, small part of your body. All the toil is just you're trying to store up so that you can eat food. Nice food, pleasant food, different kinds of food. But there's rot, and there's theft, uh, and there's spoilage, and all this. So it can only go in one hole. And that hole gets full. And here we're told, yet his appetite is not satisfied. There's something else other than a man's mouth. It's his soul that desires. And that's this very verse, verse 7. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. It's actually his soul. His soul is not satisfied. His soul is not satisfied. So verse 8, what... What advantage has the wise man over the fool? We're told earlier in Ecclesiastes 
<clears throat> that wisdom is better than folly or foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. So the wise man understands certain things in life. He's better at uh, making money, make, earning a living. But we're told here that outside of what God gives, true understanding, values, the gift of enjoyment, we're told that the wealthy or the, the wise really have no advantage over the fool. A, a worldly wisdom, it can't get them to have satisfaction because that's a gift of God. And then verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Here, the sight of the eyes is reality. This is what God has given you. This is what you have. So what you see that God has given you. And it's very interesting that the the way that desire works. Desire never desires what you have. It always desires what you lack. You understand that? Desire is never focused on what you have. Desire is always focused on what you don't have. This is what I need next. This is what I this is what I want afterwards. In in life, people often talk about the glass. Is it half full or is it half empty? They say if you say it's half full, you're an optimist. It's half empty, you're a pessimist. Perhaps things will change if, if that glass is, is half filled with some horrific medicine that you have to drink. Then maybe it's flipped around. But when you think about life, and you think about what God has given, uh, the optimism, faith tells you what I have that God has given me, what I see with my eyes every day. I need to rejoice and give thanks and be satisfied with those things that God has given me. Because the secret to contentment is not what can I continue to earn and get and buy with my money. And maybe that will satisfy me because the answer is it won't. Right now, what you have to say is we have to be content with what what God has given us here. And the comparison to what the eyes see, be content with what your eyes see, what you have now. Give thanks for that because God can take that. God can take those things. And the end result there is, well, I need to be thankful for what my eyes see. Because there may come a time when my eyes won't see them anymore. They'll be gone. The contrast, though, is the wandering of the appetite. That the appetite, the soul's desire, is constantly looking for that next fix, that next high, that next satisfaction. And we're told that that is vanity and a striving after wind. It's called raining in your eyes. Let, let me be satisfied with what I have here. And let me think about what it is that God has given. Many years ago, in the 4th century, a church father... St. Augustine. He had this quote, that God has created us for himself, and that our souls find no rest until we find our rest in God. It's as if there's a hole in our heart with a, with a distinct shape, 
And you try to plug it with different things. Like if you think about puzzle pieces, children, <clears throat> and there's a, whole, there's a hole of a certain shape, and you try to put certain things. You put a marble in there. Uh, you, 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 know, you, you put a, um, a candy wrapper. You put your finger, and, and the vacuum keeps on, uh, keeps on sucking air. But we're told that, that the hole in your heart can only be filled by God. Because there's a vacuum, and, and God alone is the one that fills that need. And you think about wealth. You think about contentment. You think about satisfaction. He who has God has everything. And he who lacks God has nothing at all. And this is the very description of a soul's longing. What are you longing for? You can have all the things in the world... And the warning in Ecclesiastes is if you have more and more and more, your satisfaction becomes less and less and less. Unless you have God and His gifts, unless you understand that your soul longs for God and He alone fills it. So this longing of your soul, that this tells you that you are created for something greater, that the eternity in our hearts can only be filled by God who made us. So that's the second point, the, long, the soul's longing. The third point, your satisfaction and rest in God, verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. So you look at God in the garden. That God gives Adam his name. And that's part of... That's part of mastery. That's part of having a master. When, when you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's when they, they were in uh, Babylon, that they were given new names because they had a new master, a new king. And so God named Adam. And besides God naming Adam, that God also foretold the prophecy. He foretold of the things that would come. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Meaning that God has foretold great things to us in his word about what he would do. And it is known what man is. So what is man? What is man that you should care for? Other parts of the scripture say that man is but a worm. That all the nations, all the people of the nations are but a drop in the bucket. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he this is man attempting to dispute with God. There's a few accounts of this, of man attempting to dispute with God in the scriptures. There's Job. He disputed with God. He lost. Job lost. And then there was Pharaoh. Pharaoh disputed with God. Pharaoh lost also. Perhaps you can see the pattern. Whoever disputes with God loses. You ever try to argue with someone? You enjoy arguing with people that you can't win with? 
when you argue with them? Children, do you, you argue with your parents? You find that you can't win? Men, do you argue with your wives? You find you can't win either? Maybe you should stop doing it. So also with God. You argue with God, you're never going to win. That's an argument you will never win. You will lose it every time. In verse 11 there, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? The argument goes on and on. The argument gets longer and longer. What does it prove? What does it change? The answer is nothing. Maybe instead, maybe instead of, of our thoughts and our hearts and our words arguing with God, disputing with him, that there should be more words of gratitude and thanksgiving, more words of praise, uh, more words of, of praising God for who he is, the holy and the righteous God. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. You realize that this is where everything went wrong in the garden. That God had provided man a garden. He provided man a helper. Everything in the garden was good. And yet here, for who knows what is good for a man? In the garden, Adam was saying, I know what is good. God, you've given me that which is not good. That one tree that you said, I cannot eat of, that is what is good and that is what I need. And that was the beginning of the end. And all the troubles of life have to do with that is, is God saying, I've given you these things and they're good. And us turning to God and saying, you've given us things and they're not good. Because this is what's missing from them or this is what's What's bad about them? It's man, you and I telling God what we think is good and that his views are wrong and our views are right. And this is, this is the reason why there's this dispute. But you think about what God has told us is good. God has told us many things are good. We have the covenant of works that Adam and Eve failed miserably. That God put them in an ideal situation. There's a garden. Here's a helper. Tend the thing. Take care of it. And failure. It, it brought tragedy everywhere. When the scriptures, Romans chapter 8, describes the longing of creation, meaning that the fall didn't affect only man. It affected our, our environment. It, it affected uh, ecology and, and, and the, uh, the balance of the ecosystem that we had. It affected all of those things. That there was tragedy that took place. And then God demonstrated his goodness yet again in the covenant of grace. That Adam was supposed to live the perfect life. He failed. And in the covenant of grace, in the good news of the gospel... God provides you a mediator in Jesus Christ. So he understood. God understood. Man failed through Adam. And because of that, there is no possibility of perfection anymore. In fact, uh, man, by ordinary generation, the best that he can get is a sinner. A, a, a sinful man and a sinful woman only produce sinners. And in that situation, 
There would only be death. Death begets more death. But God in his goodness provided sinners with a mediator in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the one that is perfect. That when we think about rest, it's Jesus who offers us that true rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, we have God's statement. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God saying to his people who disobeyed him, who didn't trust him, who wandered in the wilderness. He had said, that generation, they will never enter my rest. That was a promise of God. And that's a negative. That's painful. But you realize there was actually a positive. Earlier in chapter 4 there, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Well, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Meaning, God is promising you true rest. This is what Jesus offers. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. When you think about the agitation, the restlessness of life, of life without God, what Jesus is actually offering you is something that the world could never give true rest in him. But you say, I don't have righteousness. I don't have perfection. That's part of the gospel. That's the bad news. You've sinned, and you've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And what you have in the mediator, who is Jesus Christ, is one who lived the perfect life, who died the death that sinners deserve to die. He died on the cross. And this is God telling us, this is good. I provided you that which is good. And that is my son. Believe upon him for eternal life. Trust in his promises. Understand that God knows what is best for us. We will never know better than God what is good for us. He created us. He knows us. He knows us far better than we do. He's the one who tells us, You can't finish all that food. That all that food won't satisfy you. You think about the long life. Perhaps children, you're thinking, you know what, preacher man, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to enjoy good things. I'm going to have food. I'm going to have wealth. I'm going to have toys. And I'll be satisfied with it. However long it takes for you to understand it, whether it be a year, or it be 10 years, or it be 80 years, I hope you can see that after all that time, that the scriptures, what the scriptures are testifying is true. If it takes 80 years for you to realize that, your life is not a waste. But if you die never realizing this truth, then your life was a waste. Jesus Christ is the only hope that you have of true rest. The things of this life cannot satisfy. The things of this life will remain. They will remain here. They'll be burned up. None of it will be remembered. But understand that this life is what we have now and that you should store up for an eternity. And it begins with believing God at his word. As the psalmist said, teach us to number our days 
that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And a heart of wisdom begins with believing God at his word. God, what you said is good is good. What you've given us to embrace in Jesus Christ is perfect and good. Let me begin by making that that choice of embracing the good news of the gospel and trusting him, putting him first. And so we go back to where we began, the good night's sleep, true rest for your souls. Jesus is that true rest. He is your heart's longing, regardless of what you think you need. Jesus is the one who gives you true satisfaction and rest. May we...